This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 53, entitled The Israelite King and High Human Christology, Part 2. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. We have been exploring over the past few episodes how God empowers and authorizes certain special human beings with his attributes and prerogatives, creating human beings with a high human status, not unlike what the four New Testament Gospels say about the human Messiah, Jesus Christ. We noted how Adam, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha each said and did things that might be considered words and actions that only God could perform. Furthermore, we began to look at the Israelite kings within the Psalms, noting that these specially authorized human rulers were similarly empowered to act as God's agents through whom God's rule and reign could be realized on earth. It was also noted that the manner in which these human kings bore God's prerogatives and attributes without compromising monotheism or God's oneness found remarkable parallels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their portrayals of the climactic human king, Jesus the Christ. These conclusions suggest that the Gospels teach a high human Christology rather than a Trinitarian Christology. Today's episode will continue to examine how the Hebrew Bible portrays the human Israelite kings as God's divinely empowered rulers and how these Old Testament kings exhibit characteristics similar to the human Jesus found within the four New Testament gospel accounts. Having already looked at Psalms 2 and 45 in detail, this episode will move to Psalm 72. I want to give credit to Daniel Kirk and his studies on the human Jesus as a motivator for much of my research. So let's begin our current study. Our first point is on the high human status of the Israelite king in Psalm 72. The first two verses of Psalm 72 read as follows. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're afflicted with judgment. That's Psalm 72, verses 1 through 2. There we can see that God actually invests his own righteousness and just acts, or judgments, into the human Israelite king. As we can see there, the petition was for God to give his judgments and his righteousness to the king and to the king's son. And then the wish or the petition would be that that king judge the people with God's righteousness and with God's judgments. In other words, the human king is the embodiment of God's judgments and righteous acts. Herein lies a clear example of God investing his attributes and prerogatives into special human beings. The next point looks at Psalm 72 and verse 9, which says, Let the desert animals bow before him, and his enemies lick 
the dust. That's Psalm 72 and verse 9. Now, it must be pointed out that most translations render the subject of the initial bowing as human beings, usually as nomads or enemies or foes. However, the Hebrew noun tzi never refers to human beings in any of its occurrences within the Hebrew Bible. It either refers to boats or, as in this case, wild desert creatures particularly because the Hebrew noun tzi is related to the Hebrew word for desert, which is tziah. What is, in fact, taking place at the beginning of Psalm 72.9 is a summons for animals to worship the human Israelite king, even those animals so wild and remote in the wilderness. This depiction of the Israelite king appears to be an extension of the primordial human being, Adam the king placed in charge over the animal kingdom. So again, Psalm 72 and verse 9, more accurately translated, would say, let the desert animals bow before him. And the him in reference here is not to God, but to the human Israelite king. Our next point looks at verses 10 through 11 in Psalm 72. This passage reads, let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. That's Psalm 72 verses 10 through 11. What we can see here with this section is that the human Israelite king is to receive worship from other human beings. A variety of verbs are used to describe the manner of prostration given to God's special king. The bringing of presents, the offering of gifts, bowing, and serving. Now it's these last two verbs, bowing and serving, which are most noteworthy. In the descriptions of what many call the Ten Commandments, the very same two verbs of bowing and serving in Hebrew appear in activities that are prohibited in regard to idols. Note Exodus 20 and verse 5, and it's parallel in Deuteronomy 5, 9, which both say, you shall not worship them or serve them, using the very same Hebrew verbs used here in Psalm 72, verses 10 through 11, in regard to authorized worship of human beings to another human being, the Israelite human king. This would suggest that acts of bowing down and service are forbidden in regard to idols, but are allowed and even rightfully envisioned in regard to the human king whom God has authorized as worthy of this worship. In other words, to worship a human being who has been rightfully authorized by God is not a compromise of God's monotheism or of the worship that is due unto him. Our next point is looking at verses 12 through 14. This reads, For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. That's Psalm 72, verses 12 through 14. Here we can see that the human Israelite king is described as a deliverer, as a savior, and as a redeemer. 
The verbs to deliver, to save, and to redeem are attributed to this human king. One might think that the deliverer and the savior and the redeemer is God alone. But yet we're seeing here that God, working in and through this human king, can allow this king to function with the actions of deliverance, salvation, and redemption. Our next point is looking at verse 17 and its peculiarities. Psalm 72, 17 says, May his name endure forever. May his name increase before the sun. May his name increase before the sun. That is Psalm 72 and verse 17. Now this verse is actually really, really interesting. The shift has now taken place from the Israelite king to his name, which is very noteworthy for this passage. While the hope is that the king's name will last forever, the psalm also petitions for the name to increase before the sun. And it's this preposition before that we are most interested in. Both in Hebrew and in English, the preposition before can be used spatially and temporally. In other words, the verse could be talking about the king's name increasing before the sun, meaning spatially in the presence of the sun, or it could be referencing a temporal meaning prior to the sun. The latter reading, prior to the sun, would indicate that this psalm posits a belief in the pre-existence of the human king's name. Not quite the king himself, but his name pre-existed prior to the morning sun. This was actually how many Jews interpreted this very passage, as is indicated in multiple places within the Talmud and in Genesis Rabbah, in addition to the conviction of many early Christians. In sum, Psalm 72 indicates a high human status accorded to the Israelite king, a human ruler empowered by God to exercise his judgments and his righteous acts. This king, ruling on God's behalf, will be worshipped by human beings and even by animals. The text is not embarrassed to stress the importance of this worship offered to a human being, and it does not regard this prostration as a threat to monotheism precisely because this human king is the authorized ruling agent of the one true God. The highly empowered king delivers, saves, and redeems, being the embodiment of God's just judgments and righteous acts. Lastly, the king was understood as possessing a name that pre-existed the sun, a pre-existence that seems aptly described within God's mind and purposes, rather than a literal preexistence of a human king. All of these points find parallels with the human Messiah, Jesus, so it is to the New Testament that we will now turn. Our second point looks at depictions within the Gospels of Jesus in light of Psalm 72. Just as God empowered the human Israelite king in Psalm 72 with a high human status, the authors of the New Testament Gospels depict Jesus Christ 
the king of the kingdom of God as a highly authorized human being ruling on behalf of the one true God. Here are some of the most noteworthy similarities. Our first similarity is that God invests his judgments and righteous acts into the human king, Jesus. We read in John 5.22 that Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. That's John 5.22, where Jesus says that the Father has empowered the Son with all judgment, just like the Father had empowered the Israelite king in Psalm 72 with his judgments. We move on in John 8.16, where Jesus says, But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. That's John 8, 16, where Jesus indicates that he and the Father are the ones that are executing the judgment. John 17, 25 through 26, the ending of the high priestly prayer in John 17, says this, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's John 17, verses 25 through 26, to where the righteous Father's name was made known to the disciples. Jesus, the one that makes known God's righteous name, God's righteous acts, and God's righteous character. So those are examples of God investing his judgments and righteous acts into the human King Jesus, not unlike what we see in Psalm 72. The next point is Jesus possessing authority over the animals. There are a variety of passages that we can look at to make this point, so I just wanted to pick three in particular. In Luke chapter 5, we read that Jesus said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. That's Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus very clearly demonstrates authority over the fish of the sea. In Matthew 17, we read Jesus saying, However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. That's Matthew 17, verse 27, where again Jesus demonstrates authority over the animals, specifically here over the fish of the sea. A very interesting and noteworthy example comes in Mark chapter 1, where the narrator says, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 13. It's a very interesting passage where it talks about Jesus being in the wilderness, under temptation, and Jesus was also with the wild beast. Most readers just read through this passage specifically around the part of Jesus being with wild beast and pay it no mention. They don't think it's really important or significant. But... The wild beasts are surely beasts that are controllable, they're chaotic, but Jesus for 40 days was with these wild beasts. Not unlike the wild desert beasts that are to give worship to the Israelite king in Psalm 72. 
it's very interesting here that Jesus kind of functions as a second Adam figure. Adam was the one that was tempted by Satan, had authority over the wild beast. And actually, Mark 1.13 goes and indicates that the angels came and ministered to Jesus, since the angels were also involved at the end of Adam's story in Genesis chapter 3. So many commentators have actually posited that there is an Adam Christology here in Mark 1.13. But the interesting point is that Jesus is associated here with the wild beast in a way that indicates that Jesus was able to survive with them. Our next point is that Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, is offered acceptable worship by human beings. We can see this in a variety of passages. I think we start off with the passage to where Gentiles offer worship to Jesus, Matthew chapter 2. It says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's Matthew 2, verse 11, where the Magi, Gentiles, approach the baby Jesus, offer worship unto him, and give him gifts. Not unlike what we see with the Gentile kings and rulers offering worship to the Israelite king in Psalm 72. Matthew 14 has a similar statement. And those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. That's Matthew 14 and verse 33. Here it's the disciples on the boat with Jesus. They worship him, acknowledging him not as God, but as God's son. And remember, son of God was a title for the Israelite king. Jesus, as the Israelite king, receives worship, just as the Israelite king receives worship in Psalm 72. Another reference to Gentile worship given to the Jewish king Jesus is in Matthew 15, starting in verse 22. It says, And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And the passage goes on in verse 25, and it says, She came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. That's Matthew 15, verses 22 and 25, where a Gentile woman, acknowledging Jesus as the royal son of David, as the Israelite king, bows down before him. She's not worshiping him as Israel's God. She's not worshiping him as Yahweh. She is worshiping him as the Lord, the son of David, the kingly royal descendant of David the king. Not unlike what we see in Psalm 72. We also see in the New Testament Gospels that Jesus functions as the highly empowered human deliverer, savior, and redeemer. Of course, many of these verbs are used in the New Testament after Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation, but we do find some of them used prior to that saving act. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, verse 21, where Jesus will save his people from their sins. Luke 2.11 actually calls Jesus a savior from his birth. It says in Luke 2.11, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's Luke 2.11. Jesus is clearly called a savior and he's also called the Lord 
Christ, the Lord Messiah. And in Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus himself says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's Luke 19 and verse 10, where Jesus announces that he has come to save, to deliver, to redeem that which is lost. Lastly, we're looking at the most interesting point, in my opinion, which is that the name of the Messiah pre-exists. We saw in Psalm 72 and verse 17 that the name of the Israelite king very likely was intended to be portrayed as pre-existing the actual son. We actually see in John 8:58 that Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am he. That's John 8:58, And it's this reference that Jesus says, I am he, that I'm most interested in. This phrase, I am he, in Greek, which is ego me, is a technical title in John's gospel to refer to the Messiah. It's very easy to demonstrate this. This is something that I think John's gospel goes out of its way to describe for the careful reader. In John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, it says, starting in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's John 4, verses 25 through 26, to where the Samaritan woman is talking about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. And Jesus says, I who am speaking to you am he, using the same Greek phrase, ego and me. Jesus, in response to the woman saying that she is looking forward to the Messiah, the Christ, is given a response by Jesus, who says, I am he. I am that Messiah. I am the Christ. So we're seeing there the very first occurrence, by the way, of the phrase, I am he, on the mouth of Jesus, without an actual predicate. It is in reference to the Messiah. It's in reference to the Christ. We can also see the messianic implications earlier in the passage of John chapter 8, where Jesus says in verse 28, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. That's John 8 and verse 28. Again, Jesus says, I am He, ego and me, in reference to the Son of Man. Not to Yahweh, not to Israel's God, not to God represented in Exodus chapter 3. It's Jesus here saying, I am He, meaning I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah, just as we saw in John 4, that I am he was a response to the woman looking forward to the Messiah. So, back in John 8:58, we have Jesus saying, prior to Abraham, I am he, referring to the Messiah. Jesus here is saying that the Messiah, or the Messiah's name, was prior to Abraham being born. There we're seeing that the Israelite expectation of the king in God's plans and purposes pre-existing even the son could be spoken of here by Jesus as a reference to Jesus' prominent position and authority even higher than the authority of Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish faithful. 
So I do think that John 8:58 is talking about the preexistence of Jesus' name and his role as Messiah. It's not a reference to Israel's God, but it is a reference prior to Abraham. But this is not a personal preexistence. This is the preexistence of the Messiah's name. The reference there, I am he, in John 8:58, already being described in multiple places in John's Gospel as a reference to the Messiah, as a reference to the Christ. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Psalm 72 offers an abundance of evidence showing how Jews regarded the manner in which God indeed empowered the human Israelite king. God invests his righteous acts and his judgments into this human ruler. The human king, reigning on God's behalf, is worthy of worship from both humans and even animals. The Israelite king even delivers, saves, and redeems as an extension of God's own activity. This human king is so important in the plans and purposes of God that many interpreters regarded his name as pre-existing the daytime sun. While many modern readers of the Bible might regard a person who is worshipped, who performs God's righteous judgments, who saves, and who pre-exists as someone who couldn't possibly be human, Psalm 72 begs to differ. This creates a context for the New Testament authors to say many of the same things about the human king, Jesus the Messiah. Within the four New Testament Gospels, Jesus is also a human figure who exercises God's judgments. Jesus possesses authority over the animals and even spent 40 days with the desert animals. Human beings offer worship to Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is frequently portrayed as a delivering and saving figure. And most importantly, Jesus' messianic name is said to pre-exist even the prominent patriarch Abraham demonstrating that Jesus outranks even the father of the faithful Jews. Jesus did not have to be God in order for any of these things to be true. Rather, the New Testament Gospels insist that Jesus was a human being bearing a high human status, functioning as God's rightful human agent in a manner that did not compromise God's oneness or Israel's monotheism. This points appropriately to a high human Christology. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us with a small donation. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. I also want to recommend the Restitutio Podcast for those who desire longer episodes on a wider variety of biblical topics. You can check out that podcast at restitutio.org or on iTunes. Thanks for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.